0: This is a diet of Brussels. We've got a bit of an embarrassment of riches at this point in the year. On the one hand, we've got a revival of interest in the whole question of how the UK might rejoin the EU. And on the other, we've got an ongoing discussion about how Uh, Rishi Sunak is trying to put together a deal, more accurately trying to sell a deal on the Northern Ireland Protocol. I've talked elsewhere about the whole question of rejoining. Um, Suffice to say that I think I find that the discussion is perhaps not grounded in as much reality as you might hope for. To take uh, the obvious kind of barriers to the UK just rejoining, there's the small matter of the EU and what it might feel about the UK wanting to come back in, whether it wants to go through that process and have that uh, uh, return of the famously awkward UK into uh, an EU that has managed to uh, adapt and change Uh, following its withdrawal back in 2020. You've also got the question that you don't have a party that seems willing or able to put uh, rejoining high up on its list of priorities. Clearly it's a project that requires an awful lot of political capital, that comes with a lot of fraught uh, difficulties for not much obvious reward and recompense. We know that most people are not particularly motivated by the European issue, even if they still retain strong leave and remain identities. We know that uh, there will be people who will become uh, even more disillusioned with politics if they feel that this entire process is simply about the establishment's trying to uh, overturn the will of the people, to use that dread phrase which really makes it hard to see how you ever get to an alignment of uh, the stars necessary to get the uk back in let alone put the issue to bed and i think that's really the big issue here is that as much as you might be able to engineer a short-term arrangement of uh, factors so that uh, the UK were both willing and able and allowed to uh, become uh, a member once more. There's absolutely no guarantee uh, that uh, the UK would then settle down and would uh, not cause similar kinds of trouble come the next general election. So we'll put that to one side uh, at this stage. But I think let's talk instead about the, the more pressing and problematic well no it's not more problematic it's problematic in different ways the more problematic issue of uh, a deal on the northern ireland protocol here we're operating in what feels a very bizarre and yet strangely familiar circumstance namely that we've got a prime minister who's got a very small circle of uh, advisors and people in the loop trying to cut a deal with the eu on a difficult aspect and then coming back to the uk to say here you are uh, we've made a deal please accept it now listeners of a uh, long-standing and long-suffering nature will remember that this was very much the Theresa May approach back in 2017-2018, to try and present something of a fait accompli to MPs, to public opinion, to Northern Irish parties about the terms of withdrawal, and basically bounce them into submission to say, we've taken care of it, we've made the necessary compromises, this is the only deal on the table, off you go. Now, uh, that didn't work for Theresa May uh, for a number of reasons. Firstly, she had compromised her authority uh, following the 2017 general election. Secondly, the closed nature of decision-making meant that uh, there was, firstly, not enough account taken of particular interests, most obviously in Northern Ireland, where there was a lot of pushback uh, from various quarters, uh, particularly from the Unionists. But also, the closed nature meant that there wasn't a feeling that there was much ownership of that deal, that people saw something that they were being handed... Uh, and told that they would have to like it or lump it. And so it made it easier for them to feel that, well, this is nothing to do with me, so why should I accept it? The consequence of that was ultimately that Theresa May, after a series of incredibly painful uh, parliamentary debates, had to offer her own head up on a plate uh, as the price for trying to move things along, resulting in Boris Johnson becoming Prime Minister, And then he making uh, well not a U-turn, but making a pitch that he had recast the the debate and the terms of the deal on the protocol, such that this was the uh, oven-ready. package that needed to be approved, which he uh, succeeded in doing very handily, uh, not least off the back of a uh, stunning uh, election win in December 2019. Now, none of those lessons appear to have been particularly internalised by Rishi Sunak. Sunak built on Truss's shift uh, after Johnson, namely of instead of making an instinctive rejection of anything to do with the Europeans and the EU, instead starting to say, well, let's start to make some constructive uh, interactions. So, uh, Truss attending the European political community meeting uh, in Prague uh, during her brief uh, time in office, trying to re... uh, vitalize the discussions and negotiations between the Commission and the government on the Northern Ireland Protocol. So that takes that up and by all accounts has found a form of words that is satisfactory to both him and to the Commission. Now it's kind of hard to know quite whether Uh, how far that goes or what it contains and we see lots of indications that there are red and green lanes for goods entering Northern Ireland which was a long-standing British suggestion and idea which the Commission had rejected as uh, impractical uh, which it now seems to have given way on there seems to be some clarification, I wouldn't put it stronger than that, about where the Court of Justice can and cannot rule in matters relating to the protocol. So making clear, I think, that uh, it only rules on the meaning of EU legislation rather than the case as a whole. Now, I've understood it, that was always the case within the protocol, and so a lot of this is about demonstrating that that uh, is the case, rather than necessarily changing the terms of what there is. And then there seems to be, more recently, some speculation that there is uh, some latitude being shown about applying state aid, uh, and other rules are uh, within Northern Ireland following the UK government's uh, policy rather than the EU's. So th- the Commission appears to have given some significant grounds on issues, the government's appears to have given significant ground to, particularly and obviously in terms of not rewriting the protocol. So what is absolutely clear is that this is not a uh, renegotiation of the protocol text. Now, uh, we know that that's a bit of an issue for the DUP and we'll come back to that. What's less clear is whether this is uh, an agreement that somehow overwrites the protocol without rewriting it. Now that is a somewhat subtle distinction but ultimately there is scope within the protocol to make uh, additional agreements that then uh, override and replace uh, or make ineffective parts of the protocol treaty. Now we see various reports in the last few weeks that this is a possibility and this might be a gambit that might have been tried. But ultimately, even if that happens, uh, the EU uh, pushed for the form of the the protocol that it did for a reason. And so any agreement that it's it's signed up to at this stage is going to have to respect the basic outlines of that protocol arrangement. That basically Northern Ireland still remains aligned with the single market in order to facilitate... uh, north-south trade and obviate the need for north-south borders. So, ultimately, you know, this deal sounds very much like the kind of thing that was probably always on the table, that uh, it was clear that the formal legal text of the protocol was a shell, and within that shell, uh, kind of setting the hard boundaries, I think there was always a sense that the Commission... Uh, and the UK could find compromises and understandings about how to make this more workable in practice. Now, the UK's non-engagement with that, its uh, immediate pitch, uh, or seemingly immediate pitch towards, well, we'll just disregard the protocol in its entirety, or very significantly, meant that uh, we never really got to explore that kind of avenue. You know, Route 1 was renegotiation, the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, the retained EU law bill, uh, all of these things that basically just said, well, we're going to throw the whole thing up. Rather than, well, we've got this, let's uh, look around the edges uh, and see how we can uh, lessen the burden. So this is a long way round, or it feels like a long way round to something that would have been available a long time ago back in 2020 if the government had been so minded, but the government was not so minded. The problem again though is that Sunak has made this deal very much behind closed doors, that uh, I don't think I've met anyone who has actually uh, seen the text of the deal, and I I don't think that there are many people who have seen that. We see lots of rumours, we see lots of uh, chat around it, but we don't actually see a text, which is uh, already a step up from uh, the past where things got a little bit leaky under May, um, but uh, it doesn't change the fact that, again, we now have a government trying to find approval when uh, that is made more difficult by the way in which this is arrived at. Now, central here is, I think, the DUP, not so much because they hold a veto power, because in formal terms they hold no power, but rather because of the position that they have put themselves in over the last few years, particularly their stated policy that they won't re-enter the executive in Stormont unless and until the protocol is scrapped. Now, that's a very high threshold. And uh, even the government was not, you know, the Northern Line Protocol Bill, which would have set aside m- most of the operative parts of the protocol, would not have set aside the entirety of that protocol. But the DEP, and I think this is more for reasons of uh, local politics than it is for the substantive content of the protocol, uh ...laid down this red line, and that's been reaffirmed uh, just at the end of last week, really uh, have placed themselves in a position where it's very difficult to see how they can come around to uh, agreeing to uh, the deal as far as we understand it. Now, to be clear... Agreeing to is not the same as acquiescing or not stopping. Um, There seems to be a a lot of emollients coming out of uh, the mouths of people like uh, Jeffrey Donaldson about uh, Sonax deal, which suggests that they uh, might be willing to kind of uh, tolerate it, uh, if not actively uh, endorse it. But DUP's approval matters because it provides... important level of cover for tory backbenchers and tory backbenchers do hold more power now here that power is not uh in the form of uh stopping a parliamentary majority forming because as far as we can tell this deal won't actually require a parliamentary vote uh in uh, formal terms to be approved it can be done by the government itself and whilst rishi sunak talks about you know giving Parliament uh, an opportunity to voice its opinion, well, you have got a bit of ambiguity about what that means. And in any case Labour have said that they're more than happy to uh, help Sunak out because they want to deal um, knowing full well that Rishi Sunak does not want to be uh, a Prime Minister who's bailed out by the opposition, because no Prime Minister wants to be bailed out by the opposition. However, for Tory backbenchers this is a critical phase of the process. It's critical because of a number of factors. Firstly, if they accept this deal, they are implicitly endorsing the existence and the operation of the protocol in general because it it tinkers with the implementation. It doesn't change it. It doesn't scrap it. It's not the wholesale revolution that many of them have talked about. So to give way on this is to risk finding themselves in a situation in the longer term where the protocol is more uh, effectively accepted within the UK and it makes it harder for them to argue that it should be overthrown. It also matters because of kind of structural relationship between the backbenches and Sunak's premiership so far during his time in office we've seen an awful lot of cases where sunak has floated an idea and has immediately been shot down by this faction or that faction and then has retreated back so actually apart from this protocol deal it's hard to see anything where sunak has gone beyond that initial phase of saying here's a thing to actually putting a thing together and then trying to sell it so the weakness of Sunak is unwillingness to take on factions, to take on those who uh, want something different. Which, in practice, is on all issues, there's somebody who's unhappy. Would theoretically make the ERG uh, and its counterparts think, "Well, here's an opportunity to just push back." You know, let's maintain the uncertainty, maintain the instability, and you know, then we'll kind of keep things in play. Now. Here we've got a, a bit of ambiguity because uh, stymying uh, Sunak's efforts might help them in policy terms and in political terms, but it also clearly hurts them in terms of the image it creates of Sunak. That you know already he doesn't look like the strongest of leaders, uh, and this would be a major blow to his credibility uh, and his ability at a next general election to say well. I'm in charge of a party and we've got bold ideas and everyone's behind me because instead people will say well everyone's behind you stabbing you in the back uh if not indeed in the front. And this I think might be the final aspect I think we need to be mindful of that there is an awareness and a thought and a feeling around the party that they are coming to the end of their time in office that they've now been in power for nearly 13 years that the general election is going to be pushed back as far as reasonable, uh, reasonably possible to late next year in order that uh, you can try and soften the blow and hopefully something will appear in terms of the economy turning around or some kind of uh, rehabilitation of Sunak, or some weakening of Labour's massive lead in the polls, something that might make it not a complete wipeout for the Tories. And with that in mind, I think some backbenchers are going to be motivated by the thought of, well, we should start preparing the ground for what comes next. A crushing defeat of the order that seems currently due under uh, the polling that we've seen suggests that there will be a complete clear-out of most of the senior people, uh, let alone those who've lost their seats, You know, people like Dominic Raab, on his very small majority in uh, Isha, but also, you know, the senior team, that Rishi Sunak is not going to be able to hold on to power if he goes down to uh, a 100, uh, 150 seat majority for Labour. So that means opportunities. Uh, The the clear out of a senior team means that a new generation of leaders uh, can emerge from the back benches or from the kind of uh, junior ranks to take control of the party. And part of that will be about Brexit, that uh, demonstrating one's credentials will become kind of a a sibileth of the parties, that you've got to show that you're tough on Brexit and that you're not going to be pushed around. And if uh, the party follows the general pattern that we've seen in the past, then in opposition, they will become more uh, hard and fast in their Euroscepticism, in their brexitism than they are in government so being able to say that you have stood up to uh, a bad deal or to the nasty EU or any of these kind of things will become important and so here now we have an opportunity for that that you know you could try and trash the deal precisely because uh, you care about your uh, prospects within the party in uh, a year and a half's time, two years' time. Now that might feel a tad cynical, and I'm not suggesting that it applies to everyone, but certainly I think that's part of the calculation that's going on. Which leaves us with a conundrum. We're here, it's what, uh, Friday the 24th of February. Uh, At the moment, we don't know what's gonna happen. We keep on hearing rumours that this deal is going to be advancing, that it's going to be thrown out, that it's off the cards, on the cards. Maybe we're going to have additional, you know, efforts by Sunak to push on this, working around this uh, first anniversary today of uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. At the moment, it feels unlikely to come off. The effort to bounce into a deal by number 10 has not been handled that well there hasn't been a extensive program of engagement of meeting the people of laying the ground rolling the ground for a deal to come out an unwillingness even by number 10 to say that a deal has been done uh, to kind of suggest that there still is time to input into the process rather than just saying, here it is, we've worked hard on this uh, and pushing forward. And the longer you wait when you try to bounce people, the harder it is to do. There's more opportunity for people to start working the angles, thinking about the consequences, thinking about the alternatives and start to say, well, we're not so sure. And also to look around and see that the other people are not so sure, in which case, well, if they're not going for it, why should we? So all of this suggests that this deal is not so likely to come off. I say that in full knowledge that my historic record on predicting stuff to do with Brexit has been pretty rubbish. So it may well be by the time you listen to this that a deal has been put together. So let's just briefly explore why I think what I think and why I might be wrong. I think the costs of concluding the deal look rather high to relevant parties. For the Tory backbench, it looks like an opportunity missed to set their agenda. It looks like an opportunity that uh, might uh, allow them to keep the protocol up in the air for a significant time through until the end of this government in effect which might give them another opportunity to do something which is more uh, systematic in terms of replacing uh, or wrecking it. For the DUP, agreeing or acquiescing to this deal removes one of the big barriers that they've put, or the big barrier that they've said about returning to the executive. As far as I can see, they actually seem more concerned about having to enter into an executive where Sinn Féin will be uh, filling the First Minister post rather than anything to do with the protocol. So the domestic Northern Irish politics, I think, suggests that the DUP would be more than happy to have uh, an ongoing reason why, which has nothing to do with what... uh, they uh, actually are concerned about and the optics of that. For the EU, I think whilst they would like this deal, they may well feel, well, if this is uncertain or if it's gonna run into the sand, then we can wait until the general election and what is likely to be a more compliant uh, Labour government. Speaking of Labour, I think Labour are one of the most enthusiastic people about this deal because if it can be done, if it can take the hard, problems off the table around the protocol, then it's one less thing for them to have to do, because they know that anything that they do with the EU is going to get a lot of criticism from uh, their opposition, uh, namely the Rump uh, Conservative Party. So all the things at the moment make it feel as though this isn't going to happen. But I might be wrong. Firstly, it might be that rebels, within the Conservative Party, that the DUP might feel that this isn't worth carrying on the fight, that the broad lines are secured, that Brexit is secured, that all the talk, I've said, about rejoin is just talk, and it actually is not going to happen, it can never really get off the ground. So the headline goal is one, and that they're prepared to accept some concessions in the spirit of uh, making a more workable Brexit. And, you know, in the last couple of weeks, we've had this uh, secret meeting of leavers and remainers at Ditchley Park uh, to try and flesh out ways of trying to actually uh, just get on with it and not kind of argue uh, over the big lines. And if that's the case, if we start to see that debate happening in the Conservative Party, then this deal might be part of making things work. So... As much as it might compromise things, it might actually be the least worst option that is realistically available. That Tory rebels might well feel there is no realistic prospect that they can overthrow the protocol, that the options that they floated, of kind of unilateral disapplication, just raise so many problems around rule of law, treaty obligations, all the rest, that they just don't have the appetite for doing that anymore. Likewise, Sunak may see this as one issue where he actually does have momentum. That he has been able to put together a deal. He's shown that he is a true Brexiteer, and that you know he might be able to sell this, and that indeed being able to sell this would allow him to put together one, put to bed one of the big issues. Uh, of recent years and let him focus more clearly on the economic agenda that he hopes will help revive the economy uh, generally and more particularly in advance of a general election. So there might be an incentive in that sense to keep pushing on and try hard and to push back against rebels who in turn might be uh, less resilient than they are. And we know that the EIRG is not the highly coordinated highly mobilized and motivated group that it was back in 2019, uh, 2018. So there's a chance, there's a possibility, but that possibility looks weak. In discussions, there's this feeling that, you know, we just kind of fall into habits of uh, behavior. You know, we're doing it like this because this is the way we've always done it. And it's understandable, you know, we all fall into that kind of pattern. What's interesting and uncertain is whether people are willing to break out of those modes, whether they're happy to try something different just because they feel that the situation has shifted. At the moment, we have to wait and see. Uh, And when we do see that, uh, we will come back uh, and we'll have another discussion about it. But in the meantime, I think a useful heuristic here is to think about what has changed the problems that have led to the blockage in british policy towards the eu are due to various structural factors so which of those has actually moved and shifted from a year ago when we had boris johnson in number 10. i'll leave you to ponder that one and we'll come back to it another time soon until then Have a very good weekend, uh, whenever your next weekend is, and we will talk about the EU and the evolving relationship next month.